Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today. I'm Darren Hefty. And I'm Brian Hefty. Uh, glad to be with you today on the show. Today we're going to talk a little about soil health. If you've got any questions for us about that or anything that's going on in your farm right now, we'd love to talk to you. Our number here is 844-44-AG-PHD. That's 844-442-4743. Or send us an email, radio at agphd.com. All right, the topic of the day is spider mites, and I want to hit that right away in the Ag PhD mailbag. Let's go to that right now. Maybe. We'll see if we get some uh, mailbag music. See, so you're going to put the it's stress on Mark. mailbag time with Brian and Darren. All right, Mark's filling our, in for Janelle today. Our longtime Ag PhD TV producer, Mark, is, uh, yes, filling in for our sister Janelle running the radio yeah, Will today, on so. the Will on the phone lines. we got all kinds of stuff going on here today. So it's going to be really fun. Actually, today is the day that you want to call into the show. So our phone lines are open the whole day, 844-44-AG-PHD. So, Brian, we've gotten so many questions about spider mites. Do you want me to give you all of them at one time, or do you want to answer each one of them individually? One at a time. Okay. All right. Well, I'll start with the first one then that came in. This one came in from Kyle, and he's in central South Dakota. Uh, He said, what is the best option for spider mites out there? We haven't dealt with them a whole lot before in the past, but we've got some showing up. Just wondering, do you use a premix of multiple products? Do you just use one? How do you do it? Okay. So... As a general rule, when we're already going to spend the time and the money to go out and spray, we like to do more than just one thing. So like on our farm this week, we are spraying for spider mites, and this will be the second time, unfortunately, we've had to spray for spider mites on our farm, on all our soybeans. We've never had to spray twice for spider mites ever. So that kind of stinks, but that's just the way it goes. But anyway, as long as we're out there spraying anyway, we're going to throw in some fungicide and a little bit of foliar fertilizer. The reason why I bring that up is because as soon as you're throwing foliar fertilizer in and fungicide, then I start thinking twice about chlorpyrifos. With those organophosphate products like Lorsban, they will give you some extra leaf burn because of the oils that are in there, especially when combined with foliar fertilizer and or fungicide. So because we're going fungicide, foliar fertilizer, and our spider mite product, that means we're just going to use bifenthrin. I like bifenthrin better anyway. We have better activity on the eggs, lasts a little bit longer than the chlorpyrifos or Lorsban. So we're running bifenthrin anyway. Now, if a person wants to do a combination product, I have no problem with that. There are plenty of other products that will help you, whether it's dimethoate, Lorsban, um, abamectin, there, there are a number of them. Now, you can get to the pure miticides if you want. And so this question came from Central South Dakota, where I know bifenthrin will work, I know Lorsban will work. But in some areas of the United States and Canada, uh, we have resistance issues. So that's where you might have to go to a straight spider mite product, something like, let's take zeal, just as an example, but there are many out there. The reason why we don't usually like going that direction is, number one, they cost a lot more money, and number two, you won't get some of the insects that you're after. For example, in central South Dakota, they're having a massive problem with grasshoppers right now. Well, the good news here is the bifenthrin will kill the grasshoppers, and it will kill the spider mites, and it will control some other insects that you might find out there that could harm your soybeans, like let's say, for example, bean leaf beetles, soybean aphids, uh, so a number of other pests. 
All right. Uh, Kyle had one other question for you too, Brian, here. You said, also, just wondering about sweet corn. We've got some buffalo bird that's gotten out of hand, and now we're quite far into the season on the sweet corn. The husk is still tight. Just wondering, is there anything we could spray over the top no. to try to knock down buffalo bird? Yeah, I, I agree. I don't think there's anything nope. you can really knock it down. And here's the other thing I thought too, Brian. You can kill buffalo bird. But it's still very sharp, and you don't really want to walk through it even after you've killed the weeds, so the weed's not competing with the crop. There's nothing that's going to really make it disintegrate in time to walk through that field and harvest your sweet corn without getting stuck. Yeah, quite frankly, late-season weeds, I usually just say, let it go. And, I mean, it stinks because you're going to fight terrible weed problems for the next five to seven years after that. But... We usually chalk those things up as experience, and we vow to never let that happen again. You know where I'm going with this. It just, you, you got to stay on top of those weed issues because, yeah, at this point, no, there's nothing you can spray over the top. You could go in and drop nozzle something potentially, but we're not even big proponents of that usually. But that would be a possibility in regular corn, for example. Some guys will occasionally drop nozzle 2,4-D. Well, you know how 2,4-D volatilizes, so that concerns us. And then you get a bunch of expense. It's not going to help yield this year at all, obviously. So it's merely a thing where we say, oh, it's going to help me in the future. But I'll also say this. This late in the season... There's probably already viable seeds on those buffalo burr plants, so I don't know that you're going to do yourself a lot of good for the future either. So if it's me, chances are I'm just saving the money. All right. Had another spider mite question. This one came in from Jeff. He said, I'm an agronomist in Minnesota, and I'm driving by seeing lots of fields with spider mites. However, some of the crop consultants here are saying that farmers shouldn't spray this early no, because they may kill all the beneficials. And also they want them to wait and see if it rains in the near future. And if it does rain, they think that will take care of the problem. What do you think of those ideas? Well, if you're going to get five inches of rain or something, then it's possible. Uh, and you're going to get that over the course of, I mean, literally it's going to rain every day for a week and you're going to get five inches out of it. Sure. But you know, if you're going to get half an inch rain one day and then it goes right back to the same kind of weather we've had, that's not going to help you. I mean, if it does, it's a minor thing. In terms of spraying early, now, there's a difference between I'm thinking calendar date is what they're saying. It's too early to spray. But if they're saying we haven't reached what we feel is a threshold area that, or a threshold level, then I understand that part. And that I would absolutely, of course, be fine with if you're only finding a few spider mites out there. The unfortunate part with spider mites is there's no established threshold for spider mites in corn or soybeans. So you just have to basically use your best judgment. A lot of times we're out there fighting other pests as well. So I'd just as soon get it done. And the other thing I'm thinking about is with bifenthrin, I'm hoping for a couple weeks worth of residual. By the time I get a couple weeks in, I'm into late August. And, you know, it's not far after that when the beans start to turn color. I, I'm not worried about having spider mite problems damaging my yield. So we'll talk a little more about spider mites and a lot about plant health or soil health right after this. No matter what time of the year it is on your farm, with a Bayer Plus Rewards program, earning and redeeming rewards are always in season. Because when you buy two or more eligible seed or crop protection products throughout the year, you earn $3 per acre in cashback rewards. Cash you can redeem and reinvest in your farm later in the season. That's Bayer Plus Rewards, and that's how we're helping make every part of your season, well, rewarding. Visit MyBayerPlus.com to learn more. See program terms and conditions for full details. Don't turn your fertilizer application plan into a guessing game. 
Understand exactly how much fertility you need to reach your yield goals with the Ag PhD Fertilizer Removal App. Simply enter your crop and your yield goal and the Ag PhD Fertilizer Removal App calculates the amount of nutrition needed to keep your crop healthy and working for you. Quit playing guessing games with your fertility needs. Download the Ag PhD Fertilizer Removal App today. Available on the Apple App Store and in Google Play. Morton Buildings knows that great buildings need great people. And we want you to be the newest member of our team. Morton is expanding its construction crew, and we're seeking new and experienced candidates to fill our crew member positions. Morton provides great pay and training, so be a part of the next generation to build Morton. Don't let the opportunity to join the best construction crew in the business pass you by. Learn more on our careers page at mortonbuildings.com. Your schedule can change by the minute, making it hard to stay on top of the latest agronomy information. But at Ag PhD, we have some good news for you. If you miss an episode of Ag PhD TV or radio, you can catch up at agphd.com. With years of valuable content and the latest episodes available to stream for free, you can continue building your agronomic knowledge on any schedule. While you're there, don't forget to check for upcoming Ag PhD events and workshops. Watch, listen, and learn at agphd.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio for a timely topic, soil health. And wow, as we've had some extreme weather in different parts of the country this year, especially like in, in the area we're in, extreme drought, we've really seen differences with soil health. Where the soil is healthy and thriving, our crops are hanging on a lot better than they are in areas where soil health is just not there. Got Ray Archuleta on with us right now, and uh, I think soil health's right up your alley. Ray, how are you doing today? Good. Uh, doing fantastic. It's good to hear from you. Absolutely, soil health is my my uh, forte and really enjoy it because it really brings re- what you're talking about is resilience, it's bringing about resilience in the natural ecosystem. And that's what we're talking about. Yeah, one of the things that we had, we recently had our Ag PhD field day, and we took some samples from a couple different parts of the field day site where we had what we thought was really good soil health and an area that we thought, no, nah, it's not very good over there. And uh, we had a company, Ag Biome, do some, some research on those soils. They found 40 to 60 different types of bacteria known to be good guys in the one area, and they found... Mm-hmm two to six in the other where it was poor. It was like, okay, yep. yeah, this is the real deal. Yep, yep. And I think the new technology that we have um, has the ability to pick up these microorganisms. Some of these organisms work in the quorum. Dr. David Johnson from New Mexico State has done some really cool, some metagenomics, and exactly what you just said, that we're finding that these organisms work in the quorum. The quorum is... You know, like if you have a, a body of uh, a body that makes decisions, they have to have four or five. Well, in, in microbiology, there's certain organisms to carry out a particular function. There needs to be four or five present. They're finding out the more we push carbon into the soil with living roots and diverse covers, you can wake up those quorums. And some of them can fix nitrogen on their own. We are just beginning to scratch the surface what these organisms can do. It's phenomenal. And the key is food. Carbon, 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 living roots can bring that biology back to life. 
Yeah, that is that is a big topic in agriculture right now is carbon and how do we document what we're doing? How do we sequester more carbon? How do we become a great partner with the entire world? I, I think agriculture has this awesome fit where we're the guys with the plants here that can sequester the carbon. So where do we start with that discussion, Ray? I know a lot of our farmers are saying, okay, if there's a few things I can change, a few things I can up, update on my farm, what should, what should be at the top of the list? Man, I tell you, the, the top thing I would put on my operation, well, there's actually three that would work very well for building carbon and also reducing your cost inputs. First, people need to realize the soil lives and gets fed with a living plant. It converts light into chemical energy. That starts that building carbon process. Those microbes grow and multiply by the billions. They get impregnated into the minerals. In fact, organic matter, about 40% of organic matter is dead carcasses of bacteria. Whoa, yep, dead carcasses of bacteria. So in other words, more cover, we know now that it's not the residues. Residue only contributes about 35% into making organic matter. It's the living roots and the biology that contributes the most. So the number one thing I would get in my operation is learn to do the covers religiously. Once you get your corn out, cover it. Get the soybean out, cover it. You start building that massive root network, triticale, so you rise in the winter, perfect. Other, start reducing the tillage, no-till. The problem with tillage is if you till too darn much, you're going to wake up bacteria and they start to cannibalize and eat the carbon and release it off the CO2. So first thing is covers, reduce the tillage, and careful with your rotations and too much manure, too much nitrogen. This is why after soybean, we noticed when we did infiltration rates in soybean, beginning of the season, it was 20 inches an hour in a no-till field with covers. After soybeans, they went down to 10. What happened? The aggregates, which are the carbon-based molecules, are like little crumbs, like little marbles in the soil. If... If you do too much soybeans, got to remember, microbes will balance their, balance their diet. Uh, legumes give off nitrogen. They leak nitrogenous compounds. Microbes will eat the carbon molecules, and infiltration goes down. Too much nitrogen, too much manure. So you've got to have a good rotation, great nutrient management. Careful the way you put nitrogen out there. So those are the three things I would focus. Covers, go to no-till and manage your, your, your nutrients and your rotations. It is critical how you manage nitrogen. Very critical for carbon buildup. Ray Archuleta here. Great stuff, Ray. With I love love bullet points. That helps a lot. I love the the stats too on the organic matter. Uh, we're talking soil health on today's Ag PhD show, and we, we love having you on, Ray. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Got Scott Inman with us right now, uh, and you know when you think about these living organisms in the soil, Scott, we get so many questions around mycorrhizae, fungi, and other uh, beneficials that we see out there, and it's certainly right up your alley as well with what you do with mycorrhizal applications and valent. Scott, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me today. It's a great topic. <laughs> 
All right, so you heard Ray hit on quite a few things there, and I know that really sets the stage for you. If we if we do the right practices and we're getting really serious about, hey, let's let's do the best we can to improve what's going on with our soil microbes in the soil. That helps a lot. And and then when we talk about introducing species that we know are helpful and putting them in the right spot, uh, I, I think that's a, a lot of the stuff that we've done anyway with mycorrhizal fungi. That's where we see the best benefit. What what have you seen? Obviously. You're you're the guy doing a lot of this research and, and seeing all the data from lots of different soils and lots of different usages. Yeah, there's definitely different stages. I mean, I think the, the critical, and Ray brought it up, was about the bacteria and trying to find that right balance. I mean, most of our soils out there are out of balance. I mean, bacteria is the dominant. I mean, it should be only about 30% of the microbiome, and fungi should be about 50%. And that's really one of the lacking, uh, you know, it's kind of the old uh, field of dreams, you know, build it and will come. And really, that's what you get, rely on the fungi. They're going to create the greatest amount the microbial biomass and then the other organisms kind of develop and and um, you know kind of get together and uh, work together more efficiently and you don't get this offset so that's where that balance comes we just got to get our you know not only mycorrhizae but it's other free living fungi we had to get those populations up to find that right balance and everything will kind of work out yeah, the fungal populations are so tough to rebuild. The The bacteria, it seems like you can turn those things around a lot faster. So what are some of the things that, that you see, Scott, that the farmers should be aware of? And, you know, we've got, like, I look at the Dakotas. We had millions of acres of prevent plant. We had that situation we're coming out of. Obviously, millions of acres of drought over the last couple of years, uh, flooding. We've just got so many things going on And in addition to just the farming practices we're doing. Yeah, so a couple of key factors in fungi development. I mean, mycorrhizae is a big part of that, you know, as far as creating the um, relationship with the plant, but also the biomass. And then, uh, I mean, we have fungi out in the soil. They just can't sustain themselves into, uh, you know, to grow. So they need the, the help of the mycorrhizae. That's a key component. And then the others will come along, and that's part of that soil structure. Um, and, but, you know, when you have these adverse events, especially when you're already low, it is difficult. So Ray hit one of the key ones is tillage. That is a destructor of, uh, you know, the not only soil structure, but also the microbial biomass of fungi. That's a uh, very detrimental. The uh, for mycorrhizae keeping the roots out there the you know the rotations with the cover crops and uh, those are key components it's not easy to build it is a slow process but you just don't want to be negative on something that you're trying to do positive and i think that's finding the right balance and managing that accordingly talking with scott inman here with mycorrhizal applications and valent scott thank you so much really appreciate all the information here when you think about just everything we're doing on the farm to to use it judiciously and be smart about what we're doing makes a lot of sense thanks for what you're doing and look forward to talking to you again all right thank you for your time talking about soil health on today's ag phd program and we've got a treat for you coming up after this we get a lot of questions about well what does neil kinsey say about this or what does neil say about that we're going to have neil weigh in a little bit on what's going on with soil health and what you can do to influence that on your farm you're listening to ag phd radio we'll be right back We now bring you an important news bulletin. This just in from Live Action News. 
innovation has come to the world of burndown. New Elevore herbicide controls your toughest weeds, even glyphosate and ALS-resistant weeds like mare's tail and henbit. Talk with your retailer about Elevore herbicide today and ask how you can start elevating your burndown. Ag PhD has one mission, to give you the knowledge you need to make your farm more successful. That's why every issue of the Ag PhD Insider Magazine features crop fertility and pest management tips, insights into the world's highest yielding farmers, updates and results from our infield research trials, as well as the latest agronomy information from Brian and Darren Hefty. We put it all in one place so you can make your farm more productive and profitable. Subscribe to the Ag PhD Insider at agphdinsider.com. You can count on AgroLiquid for precision crop nutrition. When you don't get all your potash down in the fall, when weather or market prices change your management strategy, or when you want to balance your fertilizer program with micronutrients, AgroLiquid is ready with the products and application flexibility you want for in-season crop nutrition and the research-proven results you need. AgroLiquid. Apply less. Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. Fill once, plant all day. The Thrive 3D application system from FMC is a revolutionary in-furrow crop protection platform that plants up to 480 acres between refills. The Thrive 3D application system mounts to most major planter brands and can be yours at no cost with the FMC Freedom Pass program. To learn more, call 815-362-7747 today. Always read and follow all label directions. Every week for more than two decades, AgPHD TV has provided agronomic information to make your farm more productive and profitable. In each episode, we discuss a wide range of topics covering everything from crop fertility, promoting soil health, improving the environment, pest control, and more. All designed to help you push your farm to higher yield goals and more profitability. Be sure to catch us on Tuesdays and Saturdays on RFD TV. Check your local listings or visit agphd.com to learn more. Each year brings new and unique challenges to farming, and your operation needs to constantly adapt to meet them. That's why at AgBiome, we're working every day to bring you new and better solutions, microbial-based solutions that protect your crop and help it reach its full potential. To learn more about how we're doing it, visit agbiome.com. That's A-G-B-I-O-M-E.com. AgBiome, feeding the world responsibly, partnering with microbes for human benefit. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. And if you're listening before the break, you heard my tease. We've got Neil Kinsey on. Really excited to have him on the show today. We're talking soil health, but of course, you never know where it's going to go with Neil because he's just got such a broad range of farmers that he touches, crops that he touches, and, and the area that he's in. Neil, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on today. Thank you for having me, Darren. Appreciate that. All right, so when we talk about soil health, you know, I know everybody's really excited about this topic of, hey, how do I get my soils healthy and productive long-term? And you certainly get that question a lot. When you take on a new customer or one of your customers picks up a new piece of ground, where do you start with that? I'm assuming it's a soil test, but is there something else that you're looking at? It is a soil test that we start with, but what I would say is uh, – First, let's look at what is the ideal soil, because the ideal soil should be a healthy soil. 
and that has to do with uh, 25% air, 25% water, 45% humus, 5%, I'm sorry, 45% mineral, 5% humus. Uh, out of all those, what's the one that's most likely lacking? What I tell people, if you want to start with soil health, start with aeration. We have to have enough air in the soil. Now, we have to have enough water, too. But what of all the things that we look at, what is it that generally tends to be most critical that uh, we can't live without or microbes in the soil can't live without? Generally, air is something that's most restrictive. So what do we do in order to get the proper amount of aeration into a soil? To me, that's the beginning of soil health because we have to have the right environment, not just for the plant roots, but for the biology that influence that plant, those plant roots. Yeah, that's a great tip, Neil. When you think about that, if we don't have air, it doesn't matter what we get out there for microbes or crops or whatever, it's just not going to do well. And, you know, when we look at that and we get that balance right where we've got enough air in the soil, whether that be with subsurface drainage or just getting our calcium levels up or whatnot, it makes such a difference out in the fields. To me, the first key is exactly what you said there, calcium, but it's getting the correct base saturation of calcium for sandy soils. Aeration is not so much the problem, too much air. There, we reduce the calcium, increase the magnesium to reduce the pore space because calcium, magnesium, potassium, sodium are the four elements that most have an influence on the porosity of the soil. Which one restricts the porosity? Well, which restricts calcium? does not. Calcium increases soil porosity. Magnesium, potassium, and sodium, any one or all three in combination, reduce porosity of the soil. So as a consequence, we have to look at those base saturations and correct those beforehand. And the, con the conversation was uh, uh, about, well, what do we do in terms of aeration and so forth? Once we get that base saturation of calcium corrected, I have clients who have raised continuous soybeans for 30 years and have increased their humus content from 25 to 4% humus, and it was no accident because clients right around them were not, people that we were working with were not getting the same effects because they didn't correct the base saturations and get the aeration there first. That's that's huge. And, and the other thing, uh, Neil, that you mentioned here was the humus. And I think where we've got more humus in our soils, we, we just have that tilth and uh, the, the air in the soil, a home for these microbes. That seems to be another one for us that, that has really helped improve things. Well, you know, I'm not a microbiologist, but I've been told a number of times that the microbiologist will tell you anything less than 2.5% humus, your microbes are on a starvation diet, and I believe that's true. All right. Here's my challenge, though, Neil, and you know my brother, so you know who I'm farming with. Uh, Brian says, well, if 5% is good, maybe 8% is even better. Oh, no, 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 no. I never, <laughs> ever say that. Usually it's about 7%. I thought I'd wake him up oh, over there, no. Neil. Uh, so it, so uh, on the high end, though, Neil, I think his question is, how high is too high? We oftentimes have said, hey, if we could get to 7, that's probably about it. You start well, getting a got, whole lot we've higher, got, we've got we get a lot of tie-up issues. We have fence lines that are six and seven percent that kind of thing where we do 
Yeah. No, I've, we don't. I've seen. Well, okay. <laughs> like for example, Francis Childs, uh, his test in his fence line was six percent organic matter, and Brian doesn't agree with me. He doesn't think it's quite that high, Neil. He no, thinks we're going to do better. Ours is not. Ours oh. is not six or seven percent. No. Well, here's the thing to consider, and that is some tests may measure it differently than others. And so if you want to be uh, conservative and say, well, we don't want to get too high, then 7% is a, a great figure. I think 5% is great for most people. But once on the test that we're using, once you get above 7.5% humus content, you start tying up copper. And you got to watch that because uh, once we get above seven and a half, we'll have to start putting copper on it, even to grow vegetables. Uh, now, another test, maybe they can get to eight before that happens because I don't know for sure how everybody runs their humus tests and so forth. Maybe others, they get to six and they're there. But on ours, seven and a half percent is critical, and we try to encourage our clients to stay under seven and a half percent. All right, another question for you, Neil. Do you use soil health tests, or or what do you do with your clients? Actually, uh, if we have clients that want to use soil health tests, then uh, we'll encourage them to do so. But uh, as far as going out and saying, well, let's run a test on soil health, uh, I would not encourage any client to run a test on soil health unless he just wanted to prove, well, you know, where do I stand right now and what can I do to help it? But uh, no, we don't normally encourage our clients to use soil health tests. We encourage them to correct the environment by looking at the calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium. And time after time after time, when we get that even close to right, they'll say, boy, our soil is working great. Now, if you want to go ahead and test at that, uh, Tim Reinbott, who's going to be with, with us at uh, the uh, presentation in February, uh, Tim will tell you that once you get the proper aeration in those soils, he's actually analyzed them. That's when you see the highest amounts of microbes. And he's actually measured them and shows them in his presentation. Well, very interesting. Yeah, it's, it's neat just seeing that and, and constantly studying. And what's one thing I always respect about you, Neil, that, that you're never done learning. You're always looking for more information and, and looking for how we can do uh, a better job. All right, I stole the conversation a little bit. You talked about aeration. You talked about the humus a little bit. Uh, what else would you say or what else did you want to talk about today when we, we brought up the soil health discussion? Well, uh, so many of the fellows in the, in, in the U.S. this year are talking about that they're in drought conditions. And the one thing that I would say there is uh, what we need in order to get that perfect soil, the amount of air and moisture, if we correct our base saturation of calcium, not pH, but the base saturation, get it up into the, uh, for medium to heavy soil, the mid-60s, if you're at that point and you're suffering from dry weather or lack of moisture or anything, the very next thing to look at is what you fellows emphasize all the time, and that's potassium. And potassium, if we can get that up to 4 to 5%, it's a whole lot more effective at getting moisture into the plant. And after you get the potassium up in that 4 to 5% range, be sure your zinc levels are are at least adequate. That would be six parts per million if we have minimum phosphate levels. If we have excellent phosphate levels, it would be somewhere between 10 and 20 parts per million. But zinc is the next key to getting moisture. Zinc's necessary for moisture absorption. So this is what we tell our clients all the time. 
correct your base saturation to calcium magnesium, then get your potassium level up and be sure and not forget the zinc. Very good stuff. Our, our good friend, Neil Kinsey. We sure appreciate every time we get to have you on the show, Neil. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, we've also got a meeting with Neil coming up in February right here at Baltic at the Ag PhD Field Day site. Of course, we'll be inside the Morton Center. We've had just such a great response from that. Of course, Neil always delivers the goods. Uh, so, Neil, look forward to seeing you again soon, and, and good luck here the rest of the summer. All right. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Listening to Ag PhD Radio, we're talking soil health on today's program, but also taking your calls and agronomic questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. We'll be right back. If you've ever wondered how the Farmall got its name, here's an abbreviated list of the jobs the Case IH Farmall can do. Baling, cutting hay, feeding, hauling, loading, pulling, raking, cleaning barn, mixing feed, fertilizing, mowing, chopping, seeding, clearing, irrigating, furrowing, cultivating, hitching, digging, emergency tow, harrowing, hoisting, leading parades, excavating, grading. <sighs> Let's make it simple. This tractor does it all. So no matter what you're doing, can do comes in red. Farmall. Learn more at caseih.com farmall. Your schedule can change by the minute, making it hard to stay on top of the latest agronomy information. But at Ag PhD, we have some good news for you. If you miss an episode of Ag PhD TV or radio, you can catch up at agphd.com. With years of valuable content and the latest episodes available to stream for free, you can continue building your agronomic knowledge on any schedule. While you're there, don't forget to check for upcoming Ag PhD events and workshops. Watch, listen, and learn at agphd.com. You work for results. That's why the Enlist Weed Control System gives you flexible tank mixing, near zero volatility, a wide application window, and proven weed control. Because the Enlist system was built for your results. Get better weed control with no ifs, ands, or buts at Enlist.com. Enlist.com. Are you combining around weed patches, waiting for weeds to dry down, or tired of spring burndown failures? Save time, nutrients, and moisture by including a Valor herbicide brand in your fall burndown program. Valor provides excellent residual control of tough weeds, including kochia, mare's tail, prickly lettuce, dandelion, plus suppression of bromes. Proactive, effective weed resistance management starts in the fall. Get a clean start for your next season with Valor Herbicide Brands. Always read and follow label directions. Don't turn your fertilizer application plan into a guessing game. Understand exactly how much fertility you need to reach your yield goals with the Ag PhD Fertilizer Removal App. Simply enter your crop and your yield goal and the Ag PhD Fertilizer Removal App calculates the amount of nutrition needed to keep your crop healthy and working for you. Quit playing guessing games with your fertility needs. Download the Ag PhD Fertilizer Removal app today. Available on the Apple App Store and in Google Play. Do you need to replant soybeans due to cold temperatures, heavy rains, or another weather event? Weeds don't seem to care, and you have limited options for last-minute weed control. This is when you turn to Spitfire Herbicide from New Farm. Unlike other Phenoxy herbicides, Spitfire can be applied up to seven days before planting. Fields treated with the dual active power of Spitfire will benefit from weed control that will ease planting and help your beans establish a good stand. Spitfire from New Farm, here to help. 
Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Soil health is our topic today, but we're taking your calls and agronomic questions as well at 844-44-AG-PHD. Got Luke with us right now. He farms over in the state of Wisconsin. Luke, how are you doing today? Doing all right, Darren. How are you? Pretty good. Okay. You've heard some of this discussion about soil health. What are some of the things when you think about that topic for your farm that you've done, some of the changes you've made over the years, and and what you're seeing out there in your soils? The biggest change that we've seen, we've only been strip tilling since 2018. Biggest change we've seen would be likely the earthworm populations and the amount of uh, crop residue and for us specifically, pen pack uh, manure applications, the amount that the earthworms can turn over. I know I've met a lot of resistance in jumping up custom strip till work for guys. Oh, how do we deal with the residue? But the earthworm populations is probably the biggest change in their ability to turn turn residue. Yeah, the strip till and residue management topic is is a big deal. I know we we get a lot of farmers that ask us as well. Man, if you're in a corn on corn situation, can you make it work? Do you have that in Wisconsin? Are you in a corn on corn in some of these fields? We are not a lot of corn on corn. We're mostly fifty fifty on the corn and the beans, and then obviously some gets rotated out for hay ground. Okay. On the corn residue side of things, I was out scouting soybeans last week. And on 193 bushel corn residue, you're hard-pressed to find any amount of that even out there that, you know, the microbes in the soil, the earthworms have already taken last year's crop residue, and it, it's out of the way. Yeah, that's that's really awesome. The the earthworm population, too, when I think about that, I, I we had the question come up at the Ag PhD Field Day about well, what population are you looking for? Do you have a certain number of earthworms? Are you counting them? Or are you just noticing them as you dig a shovel in the ground? As far as uh, a target, I don't really set a target for earthworm population because it's out of my control. I have noticed, you know, there's a at least a million per square foot when, before we got really dry. You know, the amount of earthworm castings on top of the soil, I mean, it, it's just it is covered the activity is undeniable and it's gotten to the point where you stick a shovel in the ground and you kill two earthworms on the way down there's so many of them. And, uh, yeah. and you feel bad about looking to see how healthy the soil is knowing you're killing a couple. Yep, yep. No, I know what you mean exactly. So okay, talk to me about the strip till then. How do you guys do it? Are you using shanks or are you using coulters or does it kind of vary depending on the soil conditions? Uh, how we're set up, we run a, a soil warrior. We run the cogwheel in the fall and then the, the triple coulter, lead coulter, and then the two shallow tillage coulters in the spring. Most of our corn ground, we go two-pass P and K applications in the fall, as well as I'm actually set up to seed a cover crop in that pass with soil warrior, too. And then freshening pass, I usually like to put down a little AMS, a little urea to have some early season nitrogen on the soybean side of things, we the protocol would be fall zones, any P and K needs, and then freshen pass depends on more on time or additional fertility requirements more than uh, necessity for seed bed prep. Being that we have found soybeans are just a little bit more forgiving, getting planted cold and moist. 
Yeah, and that's contrary to what a lot of folks have said for years. Oh, no, we plant the corn first, but we're seeing so many guys switching over and planting the beans first now when it's a little bit cooler. Hey, one other thing that you mentioned there that I thought was interesting is doing the cover crop seeding with your soil warrior machine. I know we've had some questions around that. We've had, had a lot of farmer interest in that topic. What's been your experience with that? Have, have you had good success with it? I've had mixed success with that. I On the wheat ground, where there's a lot more growing season left, I'll put some clover, some radishes in the zone, and that I've been quite happy with this past winter, unfortunately, when it warmed up in March and then froze in April, all my clover died. Up until that point, that was working really well for me. On the uh, in-between zone application, we did some rye last year. The rye went into winter compared to a field we actually used a no-till drill on. The Seeding the rye with just a on-the-ground application, it went into winter, it germinated, it was a couple inches behind, and then we come through the other side of winter this spring, the stuff that was no-tilled went into winter a little better, came out of out of hibernation a little bit better as well. All in all, though, the uh, on-top-of-the-ground application that we're getting when broadcasting with the soil warrior, it works. It, it's, you know, it's not the perfect seed bed. It's not it. We would never be able to take that to, to green, aside from the reduced population because of the cover crop, not the seed crop. Um, but as far as success, I would say... Overall, it's working quite well for us. Still a little fine-tuning, as I'm, as I'm sure most guys playing around with cover crops have at this moment. Absolutely. Still trying to figure out the, the per- perfect recipe. Well, and, you know, we do the same thing in our corn and soybeans and hay crops, too. We're always changing a few things up, always learning as we go, and, and things change over the years. Now, one thing, too, Luke, that, that you mentioned was the pen pack manure. So when you're dealing with that, do you have any tips as we get into that season here coming up? Two biggest tips would be if you can put it all out in fall or stockpile any spring, you know, if you got a place to pile the manure that comes out of the sheds in the spring, put it out after harvest. Don't have it out there ahead of time. There's, there is a, I've seen the fields that get spring applied, pen pack. There are spots that look like nitrogen is tied up or decomposing that. If you have a guy as a place to pile it, that would be my first recommendation. Second recommendation, better have good row cleaners depending on application rate, anybody running um, soil wars, for example, has the option of a row cleaner or not a row cleaner. The row cleaner makes the whole thing work. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good there tip. Are obviously row units out there that the uh, row cleaner aspect of the strip till is inseparable from it, but Yep, yep, that's for sure. No doubt about it. Well, we're talking with Luke here in Wisconsin. Luke, thank you so much. Really appreciate you sharing what's going on in your farm. Good luck to you as you get towards harvest this year. Thanks for having me. Take care. You bet. Uh, Brian, we get, it's just funny, some of these questions that keep coming in. It's spider mites. Spider mites. We were talking about spider mites earlier in the show today. And- yep, we, we have been. I'll tell you what, let's save that for right after our next break here. I just want to finish up on this whole soil health thing, and I thought Neil Kinsey brought up a couple of really good points. And one of the key things, and so for anybody listening, I don't know if you caught that, he just said, no, I don't normally recommend that somebody goes out and does this soil health test. I often say the exact same thing. I just say, just show me your regular soil test, your regular complete soil test, and I can give you a pretty good idea whether you've got a healthy soil or not. So we're looking for things like soil pH, having our nutrients in balance, having an ample amount 
of nutrients out there. And certainly organic matter is huge. And so if you just look at those things, I mean, really fast, you can say, oh, yeah, this looks like a pretty healthy, productive soil, or uh, you got a little bit of work to do. Now, I, I will just tell you, on our farm, we've had a little bit of work to do. We've been working on that for 20-something years, 30 years, I guess, uh, and it, it continues to get better. But that doesn't mean that we're ready to stop. We want it to keep getting better all the time because we're faced with adversity almost every day, it feels like, as farmers, and we just want to get as much productivity out of our land as possible. And so almost every farm magazine you read now, they will talk about soil health. But it's like, okay, what specifically do I have to do? Because the two biggest things I see are no-till and cover crops. Well, look, cover crops don't work for us when we're raising full-season crops, when we plant when the frost is coming out, and we harvest when the frost is going in. So it's like there's no time for a cover crop. My, My crop is my cover crop. Okay, so that's that cuts cover crops out for most of my operation. And then when I think about no-till, I don't have any issue with no-till. It's just we prefer strip-till so we can get warmer soil in that row and place our fertilizer deeper. So what I'm saying here is we can still have super healthy soil and build soil health even if we aren't using cover crops and we aren't going no-till. So any way you farm can be can work. It's just you have to manage it a little bit differently and you always have to be thinking about how do I truly make that soil better? Not just thinking either about crops, but thinking about water and air management, thinking about the microbes that are in there. There's a lot to it, but it is a lot of fun and it's rewarding when you get your soil built up. All right, we're going to get back to your questions, especially spider mites, but we got a few others as well coming up right after this on Ag PhD Radio. In an uncertain market, you need to maximize the quality and profitability of your stored grains by controlling profit-robbing insects. A tank mix of Daikon IGR and Sentinel EC insecticide, or Daikon IGR Plus, offers the long-term control of an insect growth regulator and the knockdown power of a broad-spectrum insecticide. Keep your grain clean with grain protectants from Central Life Sciences. To learn more, contact your local dealer or visit bugfreegrains.com. Every week for more than two decades, AgPhD-TV has provided agronomic information to make your farm more productive and profitable. In each episode, we discuss a wide range of topics covering everything from crop fertility, promoting soil health, improving the environment, pest control, and more. All designed to help you push your farm to higher yield goals and more profitability. Be sure to catch us on Tuesdays and Saturdays on RFD-TV. Check your local listings or visit agphd.com to learn more. Boost your productivity and profitability with Soil Warrior from Environmental Tillage Systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and your yield potential in just one strip-till pass. Now that's ROI. Contact us today at SoilWarrior.com. Get an extra semi-load out of your grain bin. The Enzone from FarmShop MFG can increase your stored beans moisture from 10 to 13%. On a 20,000 bushel bin, that's a free extra semi-load. Visit FarmShopMFG.com for more. Are you combining around weed patches, waiting for weeds to dry down, or tired of spring burndown failures? Save time, nutrients, and moisture by including a Valor herbicide brand in your fall burndown program. Valor provides excellent residual control of tough weeds, including kochia, mare's tail, prickly lettuce, dandelion, plus suppression of bromes. Proactive, effective weed resistance management starts in the fall. 
Get a clean start for your next season with Valor Herbicide Brands. Always read and follow label directions. Ag PhD has one mission, to give you the knowledge you need to make your farm more successful. That's why every issue of the Ag PhD Insider Magazine features crop fertility and pest management tips, insights into the world's highest yielding farmers, updates and results from our in-field research trials, as well as the latest agronomy information from Brian and Darren Hefty. We put it all in one place so you can make your farm more productive and profitable. Subscribe to the Ag PhD Insider at agphdinsider.com. Heat, drought, wind, hail, northern corn leaf blight, gray leaf spot. If your corn is under stress, you are too. Get Veltima fungicide, swift activity, with fast payback, an expanded application window. Makes life simple, and it's the secure choice with powerful residual for visibly healthier corn. Swift, simple, secure. Veltima fungicide. Call your BASF rep today. Always read and follow label directions. Veltima fungicide is not registered in all states. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. We are in the Ag PhD mailbag time, taking your calls and questions throughout the rest of the show at 844-44-AG-PHD. You can also email us, radio at agphd.com as well. It's exactly what Mike did about Brian. The subject again, spider mites. So Mike's in southern Minnesota. He said, we have heard about spider mites. We've seen them off and on a few times, but never this bad. We always had enough rainfall through the summer that it seemed like that kept the spider mites in check. But We've got spider mite populations right now that are growing, and some of the consultants in the area and our university are talking about potentially resistant mites, uh, resistant to the Lorsban products, which makes things more complicated. So we had been running a pint of Lorsban and a full 6.4 ounces of a bifenthrin product, and a yep, combination of those was working, but yeah. we also are wondering about a product called Agramec SC. It's just abamectin. abamectin that's probably 50 years old, and that works fine. So you could use abamectin, you could use dimethoate, you could also go to a, a straight miticide, like a zeal, oberon, onager, comite type of product, but what you're doing is just fine. On our farm, we're spraying today, we've been spraying this week, hopefully the guys are about done now spraying our soybeans, actually hopefully they are done right now. Uh, because I wanted this done even last week, but we had our Ag PhD field day going on. So we were a little busy last week. But anyway, uh, we're just spraying straight by Fenthrin at the 6.4 ounces at the full rate. So, and it works fine. We did the same thing way back in June, worked fantastic. So I'm not too worried about the resistance issues around here. Plus, we don't spray very often. This is our, like, seriously fourth time spraying spider mites ever i think on our farm so you know when it's a bug that you spray on a regular basis especially if you spray every year or multiple times a year you start to have to really worry about the resistance issues i don't know that we're seeing chlorpyrifos resistant spider mites it's possible that we're seeing that i mean they have that in other areas of the united states and we definitely have issues with bifenthrin resistance in other areas of the United States. We just don't really seem to have those issues around here. So your combination you're doing is great. The only drawback to that is just you do have the Lorsman in there. So I was saying earlier in the show, if you want to run a fungicide, if you want to run a foliar fertilizer, well, guess what? Those two things add leaf burn. So does the Lorsban. And 
I just don't like the amount of leaf burn I end up getting when you put Lorsvan together with fungicide or fertilizer. So because we're out there spraying anyway, believe me, we're using something else. We're not just going out to spray mites. We might as well get some good out of it as long as we're some more good out of it, as long as we're making the trip anyway. It doesn't cost any more, just the cost of the product, you know. Uh, so I, we're doing fungicide, foliar fertilizer, and a miticide, which in our case is bifenthrin. Bifenthrin is the cheapest product to use anyway. It's fantastic. It's good on uh, mites. It's good on young mites. Uh, it's it, it's great. You'll get probably a couple weeks worth of residual, definitely more than you'll get out of the Lors man. So that's really the big thing I see. Because I have talked to guys that said, oh, I've used Lorsman. I talked to one guy just this morning. He said, I used Lorsman 10 days ago, and now there's some mites in there again. Like, well, Lorsman doesn't last a long time. That's that's one thing we've always known about it. So is it truly resistance or are the mites just moving in hard? Personally, I think the mite populations have been exploding everywhere. And let's face it, like for the guy that I was talking to this morning, did his neighbors spray? Nope, just him. So if none of your neighbors have sprayed and all the bordering fields are loaded with mites, what do you think is going to happen to yours? So this this is why it's always nice when you have uh, neighbors who want to spray at the same time you're spraying and you can all take care of the problem together. All right. Thanks for the question. Got this one from Jacob down in Arkansas. And I think we had him on the show and we were talking about nitrogen and then they got 18 inches of rain. <laughs> and he said, really made us change our, our ideas on nitrogen. So we're between 220, 240 bushels or units of nitrogen on now, but I'm afraid our yield levels are not going to make it for our nitrogen to yield ratio, which is generally 1.2 pounds of nitrogen per bushel of corn or 1.25. Uh, but he said, on a different note, uh, my dad was at an NRCS meeting discussing taking carbon from burned trees and injecting it deep in the soil to create sequestered carbon. I really don't understand that discussion. I understand the importance of carbon in the soil, but I'm sure that there's much more to this I don't know. Do you know anything about that? Uh, hadn't heard about so, that before. So say that again. He's taking carbon from burned trees He's, and just burying it in the soil? And injecting it deep into the soil to create sequestered carbon. Sounds expensive to me. Well, plus the fact that you now had to do tillage to inject it into the soil. I mean, granted, it's not massive tillage, but it's still something. So you release some carbon just because of that. I can't believe you're coming out much ahead on that deal. How you come out way ahead is you leave the roots intact on whatever you've got, and that's going to absolutely build soil carbon. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I guess no, I it agree. Seems, it I, seems a little crazy. Back to, me. to what Ray Archuleta had said earlier in the show, that 40% of organic matter is dead bacteria carcasses and that living roots and biology are the biggest organic matter builders. We have right. to leave those roots intact right. and, and we can get yep. things growing. Yes. All right. Well, thanks for the feedback. We really appreciate that, Jacob. Sorry you got the 18 inches of rain in such a short period of time. What a what a mess. What a mess. All right. Got a question here from Adam in South Dakota, and he said, you guys talk about field scouting a lot. I'm wondering, could you describe what your farm's weekly scouting routine and procedures are? I know you guys probably have a system. Just wondering how often you're looking at each field and how much of the field are you looking at? How do you target different areas, that type of thing? And then if you have any weekly notes that you're super interested in seeing or, or what you're really looking for. All right. So part of the thing for Darren and me, we're super busy. We have a lot of other things going on and we also spend a tremendous amount of time training agronomists. So no, we don't have an exact schedule in part because we use our fields 
for training of agronomists. And so we are sending people out on a very regular basis looking at things, whether it's making field observations or pulling tissue samples. We have people in the field every week. Uh, most of the time, and I'll be honest, it's not me. I'm rarely out in the fields anymore. And it's been many years since I've been out in the field all the time just because I do have so many other things going on. So I'm counting on some of our other people internally here or others we're training to be my eyes and ears more than anything. Um, we do think it's really important to be out there at least every week in terms of where exactly you're going. Well, let's put it this way. We farm 3,200 crop acres. And if you were going to get over every acre every week, that would literally be your full-time job and you would have time for nothing else. So we realize that's impossible. And I, I guess we just think you should probably be in every field every week as much as you possibly can. But then also use satellite imagery and some other things to, especially satellite imagery, to look at, okay, where are my problem areas, where are the good areas, things like that. In terms of the plant tissue analysis, we use that. We use soil testing. Uh, so there are other metrics that we're using as we go throughout the year, but nothing quite replaces being out there while the crop is growing, scouting for weeds, insects, diseases, lodging. Just, I mean, does anything look right or wrong? And what can we do to make that better moving forward? So, yeah, I, I'll put it this way. If our only job here was farming. That was all we did. We would have an exact plan for, okay, what are we doing? Which fields are we going to be in? How are we going to do this? Everything else. But because of all the other stuff, it's kind of like when people say, well, what product do you use on your farm? <laughs> and I go, well, we probably use them all because we're doing all kinds of research and testing and our farm is just not a normal farm. So it's a little bit hard when you ask us a question like that. We'll, we'll tell you what our advice would be, but I wouldn't tell you do things exactly the way we're doing just because um, our farm is absolutely not common. Now, I'll, I'll say to the guys who work for us on our farm, um, I think Darren uh, could agree with this. About half the time, they probably don't like it because we say, well, you got to do this and you got to do that. And we're doing this trial and that trial and everything else. No, but they're pretty specific <laughs> about, hey, if we find something that works, we get to do it all over. So and yes, yes, you do. But we're going to look no, for a lot of things. No, not necessarily. Sometimes we'll say, yes, you do. But most of the time we say, well, that'd be great if we were just farming, but we are not. We're doing a lot of the things we do for research. So you got to keep doing this trial and that trial and everything else. So it's a lot of work. We appreciate our people because they do a good job. They are diligent and, and they're, they are paying attention to, you know, what is happening in the crop all the time. But it's hard when, and I'm sure for anybody out there, when you've got, when you're trying to manage multiple crops on lots of acres with lots of employees and everything, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Got to talk about soil health today. Got to talk to our good friend Neil Kinsey as well. And Brian and, and I uh, mentioned that Neil is going to be back doing another meeting with us uh, coming up next February. So just keep an eye on agphd.com for more details. Thanks for listening to our show today. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.